Alright, we met here for the purpose of worship, and certainly worship consists of a lot of things, not the least of which is prayer. So I'm going to ask that we go to the Lord this morning and uh, present our claims, and we know we're going to get a perfect prayer no matter what we pray for, because of the grace of God. So let us pray. Father, I come to you this morning clothed in humility. I pray for the delivery of America. Our nation is certainly in jeopardy. Virtue has given way to degradation. Spirituality has given way to dependency and spiritual complacency. Clearly, when believers fail, a nation fails, and that nation is punished. Many believers are confused about the spiritual life. They have neglected your infallible word and thus failed to take the high ground to spiritual maturity. Let today be the day when we as believers respond to the clarion call. And that call is expressed in 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will heal their land. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And you can see that Second Chronicles 7.14 on the board uh, as uh, I have just quoted. And that's our job to uh, submit to authority and to uh, uh, get with the Word of God and take it in regularly uh, and uh, grow in His grace. And that's the answer to America's problems. All right. Uh, I want to put one other chart up on the board. Now, this one I've quoted very often, and it's... Uh, wonderful promise that says when we pray, uh, we are going to get a perfect prayer to God. 
And uh, that is Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27. And you can see there, uh, when we get to giving, that uh, uh, we're going to talk about grace. Well, there can be no more grace uh, than expressed in 8, 26 and 27, because there it tells us that we don't know about what we ought to pray, verse 26. And then in verse 27, it tells us that uh, that uh, God the Holy Spirit does, and He's going to come up with a perfect prayer, and then it tells us the Lord Jesus Christ is going to take that prayer to the Father, and then uh, the Father is going to execute a perfect plan, just as that perfect prayer has asked. So we can have a lot of confidence when we pray, and that's our job. Alright, now let's go to another aspect of worship called giving. You see these two verses on the board that we have in the past uh, quoted again and again. But basically, it says that uh, uh, you can give in the privacy of your mind, even if you don't have something to give. And then the next verse, both of them in Second Corinthians, one's in chapter 8, one's in chapter chapter 9, as you can see on the board. Uh, it says that if you do have something to give, you ought not give it unless you can do it with the proper mental attitude. So if you can't be a cheerful giver, you ought not to uh, uh, bring it. In other words, you should keep it. And uh, that's what the Scripture teaches. So uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and I'm going to ask God's blessing upon both the gift and the giver, and also upon the, the rest of this service, as we are going to have music when I'm finished with giving as another aspect of worship. So again, let us pray. Thank you, Father, the privilege, Father, of worship. Now, I would ask a very special blessing upon both the gift and the giver and the rest of our services. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you would, Kenneth, let's see what the chocolate box has for us today.
his neck, can calm the storm, heal the broken and raise the dead. At the name of Jesus, I've seen sin-hardened men melt, Derek transformed, and the lights of hope put into the eyes of a hopeless child. At the name of Jesus, hatred, bitterness, you know, they turn to love and forgiveness, and all arguments cease. I've heard a mother falsely breathe his name at the bedside of a child, delirious from fever, and I've watched that little body grow quiet, and the fever grow quick. I've sat beside a dying saint, her body so wracked with pain, but in those final fading seconds, she would whisper her sweetest name. Emperors have tried to destroy it. Philosophers have tried to stand it out. The terrorists have tried to wash it from the face of the earth with the very blood of those who claimed it. Yet it still stands. And there shall be that final day when every voice that has ever uttered a sound, every voice of adoration, shall raise in one mighty glory to proclaim the name of Jesus. For in that day, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is truly Lord. So you see, it was not mere chance that caused the angel one night long ago to say to a virgin
I'll second that amen, Brother Bill. Now then, we're going to uh, take this, the shorter of the two uh, lesson plans that I have provided over here on the organ. And it's entitled, Israel, a Jewel of Rome. We're actually just picking up where we left off last week. I did a lot of extemporizing about uh, the uh, 70 A.D. destruction and the various Caesars. And I thought, well, it'll just be interesting before we get into the doctrine of Paul to uh, review how did Israel become a jewel in the Roman Empire. Alright, the purpose of this preface is to let the reader know how Israel became a jewel in the crown of Rome, only to be ultimately a rebellion, a very rebellious nation, and suffer destruction, and that would be in 70 A.D. Alright, Julius Caesar became ruler of the empire in 48 B.C. when he defeated Pompey at Pharsalus in Greece. Assuming the role of a dictator, Caesar set about with great vigor to successfully restore order and prosperity in the Roman state. Unfortunately, Caesar was assassinated in 44 B.C. by men distraught over the demise of the Republic. But they shortly found out they could not restore the old political institutions. So, so much for the preface. Now let's take a look at the second triumvirate. Octavius, Caesar's adopted heir, Mark Antony, and Lepidus in 44 B.C. had themselves appointed by the Senate to rule the state. They soon destroyed the Republican forces led by Brutus and Cassius. Octavius and Antony pushed Lepidus into the background and the two triumphant survivors squared off for an inexorable struggle. Antony and his forces were defeated at a naval battle at Actium in western Greece, off the shore of western Greece, in 31 B.C. Octavius pursued the fleeing Antony and his paramour, Cleopatra, to Egypt, where the two lovers committed suicide. Now Octavius was free to restore the empire, which by this time was in a very disheveled condition. Racked by civil war for decades, the Mediterranean world suffered severe economic dislocation and some provinces tattered on the brink of bankruptcy. Political and social needs long unattended in the midst of military activity and political uncertainty now received needed attention. Octavius became Caesar Augustus and he brought peace to the empire. It became known as Pax Romanus and so peace reigned without interruption for some two centuries. Now let's concentrate on the biblical Caesars. All right, the biblical Caesars. Augustus, after restoring order, appeared before the Senate in 28 B.C., 
where he reinstated a form of republican government. But the Senate was neither able nor willing to reassume the full burden of administering the empire. So they conferred upon him the title of Imperator Caesar Augustus. And thus he became both ruler and chief priest with numerous powers. Of special importance in this arrangement with the Senate was his role as commander-in-chief. Excuse me, commander-in-chief of all the armed forces. A very grateful populace revered him, and some actually worshipped the cult of the divine Augustus. Thus, emperor worship was born. But during his reign, so was the prince of peace in Bethlehem, where Joseph and Mary reported for a census-taking ordered by Augustus as part of his effort to tidy up the empire. Augustus, who ruled from 27 B.C. to A.D. 14, was succeeded by his adopted heir, Tiberius. And adopting his heir before his death and associated him with himself, Augustus guaranteed a regular and peaceful succession and indeed set a precedent that was characterized and did characterize subsequent imperial administrations. And I provided for you a map of Rome, uh, and you can see at this particular time the various uh, sites within Rome that uh, people who go there like to go and see the ruins, myself being one of them. And my wonderful wife, Tommy, of course... All right, now let's go to Tiberius. He was a strange guy, but we'll see a little bit about him. He was reigning from 14 to 37. Is especially significant for the New Testament student. Why? Because Christ was crucified during his reign. He appointed Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea, and uh, that would have been A.D. 26 to 36, during Pontius Pilate's rule. Alright, Tiberius was also the first emperor to turn over the administration of the city of Rome to the palace guard. Rome had become a large city in need of constant administration. The guard ensured law and order and loyalty to Caesar. It was originally stationed at various places in the Roman Empire. There were 10,000 of them and they were in 10 different places, but soon... Uh, they were brought into the city itself, and that's where the Praetorian Guard became very, very powerful. And from then on, they selected all of the Caesars. All right, with the exception of, of the last one that we'll talk about, Vespasian, uh, who had an army of and to himself, which could compete with the Praetorian Guard. Or who was the next Caesar? Well, Caligula. There have been... A lot of books written about Caligula because he was kind of crazy, or better said, he was crazy. A.D. 37 to 41, he was the grandson of Augustus' daughter, Julia. He next occupied the imperial chair. And as a result of serious illness, he seems to have become mentally deranged. Among his wilder projects was the erection of a temple to himself out of public funds and appointment of his favorite horse as high priest of the cult. 
In order to obtain needed funds, he restored new taxes and confiscations and used treason as a means of seizing money and property. Caligula alienated not only the Romans, but the Jews as well. Their monotheistic beliefs prevented them from worshiping images of the Caesars. His answer to their indiscretion was the forcible erection of his statutes in various synagogues in Alexandria, Egypt. He also, by the way, took his horse into the Senate and proclaimed that his horse was much smarter than any of the senators. All right, uh, before the order to set up statuary in the temple at Jerusalem, he suffered an untimely death. Most historians believe the death was by execution at the hands of the Praetorian Guard. Not an unusual thing at uh, time progressed. Who is next? Well, here it's Claudius. A.D. 41 to 54, he was elevated to the imperial office again by the Praetorian Guard, or what is also known as the Palace Guard. The action by this crack military unit would set a precedent which would last for many years. The Senate had no choice but to rubber stamp the selection. Claudius seems to have provided a high quality of administration for the empire. He adjusted tax burdens and inaugurated an extensive program of public works. This involved building new aqueducts, roads and canals, and especially the development of Ostia as a harbor for Rome. For several decades, however, Putioli, modern Pazioli, near Naples, was to remain the chief port of the capital. Claudius also added Britain and Thrace to the empire and extended Roman citizenship in the provinces. Claudius's activities crossed paths with the New Testament narrative on at least two occasions. He permitted Judea a brief experience as a client nation under Herod Agrippa, A.D. 41-44. That was Agrippa I. And then restored it to its position as an imperial province under the rule of various procurators. Pursuant to some trouble with Jews in Rome, uh, they were constantly filling the role of a, of a rebellious group. He expelled them all from the capital, and that's recorded in Acts 18, verse 2. And also this the historian Suetonius confirms this action. Claudius adopted as his son and successor Nero, a progeny of his second wife by a previous marriage. And uh, Nero will probably outdo, again, uh, Caligula in eccentricities. All right, uh, Nero, A.D. 54 to 68, ruled well during his first five years when he was under the domination of his mother, and capable heads of the executive departments of government, chief of whom was the Stoic philosopher Seneca. When Nero became his own man, he came increasingly into conflict with various individuals individuals and factions in the government. And as he did, he became fearful of plots against his life, and his rule took on aspects of grand paranoia and a reign of terror ensued. 
Ultimately, he disposed of his mother, his wife, and his stepbrother. One hot July night in 64, fire broke out in Rome in the slums east of the Circus Maximus, which you can see on your map on page 1, and burned with unabated force for nine days, getting more than half the city. The entire city was gutted, ultimately, but not ready at this particular point in time. That will have to await, again, future all right, no effort to check it, checked it succeeded. Even Nero's palace was a charred mass. Now, in spite of the emperor's measures to alleviate the sufferings of the homeless, he could not allay the people's suspicion that he had started the fire in order to have the glory of rebuilding a grander Rome. To divert criticism from himself, he laid blame for the fire on Christians of the city and initiated the first official persecution of them. This began in the latter part of 64 and lasted until 66. It was here that most of the city was destroyed, which hadn't been burned. All right, it was restricted to Rome because those elsewhere could hardly have had a part in the catastrophe. Paul, which will be our study over the next several weeks, Paul was apparently martyred in Rome during his persecutions. Nero ultimately managed to alienate important segments of society in Rome and the empire. And of course we will study in great detail the persecutions as well as the demise of the great apostle. Excuse me. A special importance was his failure to hold allegiance of the Praetorian Guard who launched a successful rebellion in 68, Nero committed suicide, and with him died the Julio-Claudian line. All right, interestingly, the death of Nero coincided with his decision to have Paul beheaded. Paul, it would seem, had become a, become a favorite of the guard. The years 68 and 69 are known as the years of the three emperors, Galba, Otho and Vitellius, each followed in rapid succession. Over a two-year, you had the three, and uh, actually, uh, Vitellius did about a one and a half years rule, or performed one and a half years rule. So he was primarily uh, the the uh, number one of the three. All right, now, each have followed, of course, in rapid succession with the exception of Vitalis, who was the last. Now we're going to get to Vespasian, which I mentioned last week, who was in charge of the first, uh, oh, several days of the destruction of the, the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. All right, he was the commander of the armies of the east and he won undisputed control ultimately of the empire, displacing Vitalius. All right, the Vespasian, 69 to 79, could have followed the path of military dictatorship or cooperation with civilian administrators. He chose the latter and became a kind of second Augustus, dividing rule of Rome and the empire with the senate. Vespasian faced a Herculean task in lifting the empire from its disheveled state. 
but he was equal to the emergency. He put down rebellions, reformed the army, built extensive fortifications, restored the economy, and built numerous public buildings in the capital. His most famous structure, which he was not able to finish, was the great Colosseum, built on the site of one of the lakes on the grounds of Nero's palace. The most significant of Vespasian's activities for the Bible student was his suppression of the Jewish revolt. The rebellion broke out in 66, and Vespasian reduced all of Judea beside Jerusalem by the time he made his bid for for the imperial chair, returning back to Rome to displace Vitalius. Now his son Titus assumed command of the armies that finally destroyed the city and the temple in A.D. 70. All right, Titus. Titus ruled 79 to 81, and uh, he was briefly a military hero. He completed the Colosseum and delighted the populace with a festival of a 100 days in duration. And on that occasion, uh, uh, it was a debauchery. Obviously, the structure did not exist during the Neronian persecution and had nothing to do with Paul's execution. The short reign of Titus was saddened by the eruption of Vesuvius and the consequent burial of Pompeii and nearby cities. Various cities were also destroyed and by another great fire which roared through the capital for three days. Titus was succeeded by his younger brother, Domitian. Domitian ruled 81 to 96. He was the one that put uh, uh, John on the island uh, in seclusion. And, uh, of course, that's where the book of the Revelation was written. Uh, So Domitian was received without opposition by the Praetorian Guard and the Senate, but very soon won the undying hostility of the Senate. His autocratic ways revealed his intention of absolute dictatorship. Now, after uh, 86, he, he uh, required officials of the House to hold uh, uh, and address him as Lord and God. So in about AD 90, a persecution of Jews broke out in the empire. The Apostle John was exiled to the island of Patmos, as we mentioned, uh, where he again uh, wrote, the, wrote the book of the Revelation, and that ended the writing of the New Testament, 96 A.D. Domitian cannot be dismissed as a mere tyrant. In Rome, he was an able administrator. In an effort to erase the scars left by the Great Fire of 80, he implemented an extensive building program. He ruled the empire well, and it prospered under his administration. But ultimately, no one felt safe from his suspicion and purges. His own wife, believing she was to be the next victim, launched a conspiracy that resulted in his assassination in September, on September 16th, A.D. 96. Now, at the end of the first Christian century, the Apostle John was freed to return to his beloved Ephesus, where he finished writing the book of the Revelation and died a natural death. It has been concluded that the Praetorian was instrumental in the selection of all of the biblical Caesars, some to a greater extent than others.
For a summary of the activities of the Praetorian Guard, go to Pastor Merritt's study books at www.westbankbiblechurch.com. All right, now let's go to our our second set of lesson plans. And uh, we're going to begin part one. There will be the, the doctrine of Paul the Apostle. Now at the introduction, uh, when you look at the timeline, uh, it's more there for reference. I'll not go over the various uh, dates and events that took place. But when you take that timeline and you apply it to what I just covered, uh, I think you can see uh, history, biblical history, in, in the light of rulerships and events. Alright, let's go to point point one. Paul was circumcised, was a circumcised Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin. You remember Benjamin was the, uh, the last of the sons of Jacob. Twelve sons of Jacob. He was the, uh, a favorite. And uh, Jacob uh, loved him dearly. And, uh, speaking, Paul, speaking the Aramaic language in his home, he was an inheritor of the traditions of the Pharisees and a strict observer of the requirements of the Torah. Now you can go again to Pastor Mary's study books and look at the doctrine of Pharisees and get a lot of information about what he would have encountered as a young man and what he encountered early on as a uh, an avid Pharisee. All right, he advanced in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries. He was first and foremost a Jew. You remember he was originally named Saul until he took the name Paul. But uh, he was uh, one who persecuted uh, all people who did not bow to Jewry. All right, Philippians 3, 5, and 6, circumcised the eighth day. He's writing this now to the Philippians. It's one of the four prison epistles written in approximately, oh, roughly, uh, maybe 31, 32 A.D., of course. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin and Hebrew of the Hebrews as touching the law a Pharisee. Again, a statement about himself. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Alright, Galatians 1.14, And profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the tradition of my fathers. Alright, so deeply ingrained were these qualities that even near the end of his life he spoke with an honest appreciation of that heritage. More than 20 years after his Christian conversion, he cried out, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. Acts 23, verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. And of course, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. And so there he was attempting to, uh, in that 23rd chapter, to divide uh, his accusers, uh, which he was, uh, of course, 
successful. Because he will be released, as you know, and that will be the end of his first imprisonment where he receives that release. More of that later, of course. Alright, even sometime after this, he claimed he served the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the Mosaic law, and that is written in the prophets. Acts 24, 14 and 15, he says, However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, that would be the Christian way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So Paul was a Jew of the dispersion born in Tarsus in Cilicia, a place that he called no ordinary city. And I'm going to put a map on the board here. Uh, It's uh, Paul's second missionary journey. And it's not there to describe the second missionary journey, no, to speak to that subject, but rather just to provide a, a, a map where we talk about various things, since I just mentioned Cilicia as a province, and I also mentioned Tarsus, which is where Paul was born. And you can see it there. Uh, here's Cilicia, and here's Tarsus. And this, of course, is where Paul was was born and raised. And in addition to that, it will be a place later in his life where he will go and do a lot of witnessing and be very, very successful as a witnessing for the Lord Jesus Christ after he ceases to be Saul the persecutor and, of course, Paul the uh, apostles slash evangelist. Alright, so Paul was uh, a Jew of the dispersion. Acts 21.39, Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. All right, I reference again to uh, his imprisonment and his trip to Rome and uh, what he wanted to do. As he spoke, of course, while on trial first, and then later on when he met with the Jews uh, in Rome after he had uh, been in, placed in what they call the first imprisonment, which was actually he lived in a villa with at least one Praetorian guard to guard him. All right, let's go on. We will speak more to that when we get to that point in time in his in this study. So as a child, he lived in the midst of Greek culture, a place of education and commerce. It was the city, that is Tarsus, which institutions best and most completely united the Oriental and Western character. Such an environment would likely have posed certain problems for a Jew. As a Jew, he would be a member of a minority and, of course, to some, despise uh, his tenacious loyalty to the ideas of his religion would invite the taunts of many of the Gentiles living in Tarsus. A Jew would be faced with the problem of social relationships with Gentiles in general. Pharisees were sensitive, although not by any means necessarily hostile to such socializing. Paul developed a spirit of kinship with these, quote, outsiders. 
He learned to understand them and to become all things, as he said in Scripture, all things to all men. 1 Corinthians 9.22 To the weak I have become weak. To win the weak I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. In a modern phrase, we might say, he was willing to shoot pool with the devil. All right, Paul grew to late adolescence in his in this environment before going to Jerusalem to be educated under Gamaliel, a very famous teacher of Jews. Acts twenty two three, I am verily a man which am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers and was zealous toward God, as ye all are this day. Now after his conversion, which was on the road to Damascus, you'll recall, when he saw the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, uh, became virtually blind, uh, but more of that later. So after his conversion, Paul spent a period of eight to ten years in Syria and Cilicia, a time during his adult years, when he would have become deeply aware of uh, the world, world culture about him. And of course, Syria would be over here, as you can see on our map, uh, to the uh, east. So there were years of preparation for that ministry in which he was known as the Apostle to the Gentiles. Notice Galatians 1, 23, and 24 written by Paul. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. So again, uh, he had made a major step when he became Paul the Apostle. Though at this particular point in time, he was probably still known as Saul. And he had been very successful in his persecution of anyone who took the faith of Christianity. But more of that later. Now let's look at Acts 9, 27, reading through verse 30. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. In other words, Barnabas went up there to Tarsus and got him and had been with him there in Tarsus actually. And they were working together and he had seen all the wonderful things that he did telling people to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And uh, many believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul took him down to Jerusalem to introduce him to everybody. Here's a new guy, you know. He's a dandy. And he says, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on the journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And the Caesarea would be in this area right here, not the Caesarea up here. It's not Caesarea Philippi, but Caesarea, again, here in what we call Palestine. All right, in addition to these aspects of his life, one other is emphasized directly in Acts and is certainly implicit in all of his letters. He was a Roman citizen. 
And this was a prized possession. We don't know how he got his citizenship other than he was born a citizen. We don't know what his dad did to get the citizenship. Uh, but uh, he definitely was a citizen and proclaimed it often for his own protection. Notice Acts 16.38. The officers reported this to the magistrates and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. Again, a reference to uh, on his second missionary journey and when he and Silas had gone and were traveling and uh, they were arrested. And, of course, once they found out they were Roman citizens, they were, as it says, alarmed. All right, Acts 22:25. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? This was, again, a reference to the fact when he was in Rome, uh, not doing what God would have for him to do by going to Rome and even going into the temple and paying penance for someone. Uh... And uh, when he came out on the steps, he figured, well, his whole idea was, I'll go to Rome and I'll witness to all the Jews and they'll herald me as uh, Mr. October, so to speak. In other words, that's when the World Series is held. Mr. October, you know, uh, and I'm the hero of the World Series. I am a hero and they'll all profess, you know. And yet that didn't happen, in fact, uh, uh, because he managed to, Say the wrong things on the sense. As soon as he said, I've taken the gospel to the Gentiles, and many Gentiles have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the Jews got angry and they began to beat him. And the uh, Romans, of course, were in Mark Anthony Barracks, which is right across from the, from a, uh, from, from the uh, uh, temple, and uh, came and rescued him. And uh, they were going to beat him. Uh, because the theory was that you could beat a Gentile, I mean, you could beat a non-citizen until he told the truth, because you didn't have to beat a Roman citizen, because they always told the truth. Well, they uh, began to to whack on him, and he uh, made the pronouncement, I'm a Roman citizen. That yeah, scared the daylights out of him. Because you don't do that to a Roman citizen. All right, Paul recognizing the value of citizenship for sure, Again, Acts 2.28, then the commander said, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul said. He gave him a one-upmanship. All right, Tarsus was made a city of Rome just before Paul's birth, and therefore his dad and dad's posterity would become uh, Roman citizens, as would all free men of the city. That's a bit of supposition, but most likely true. Keep in mind it has been conservatively estimated that one-third of all of Rome's citizens at the time of Paul's birth were slaves. So uh, certainly that's uh, something that uh, we speak to in detail in our doctrine of slavery, which again you can find the doctrine of slavery under Pastor Merritt's study books if you want to learn all about what Old Testament slavery was about, New Testament slavery was about, and modern slavery. All right, so some of the privileges of Roman citizenship were, first, a guarantee of a trial before Caesar if requested, which Paul will certainly request later on, uh, legal immunity from scourging before condemnation, immunity from crucifixion, which was the worst form of capital punishment in case of condemnation and trial. 
All right, in his letters, Paul not only strongly advocated the maintenance of law and order, the very foundation of Roman government, but also referred frequently to citizenship. Now let's talk a little bit about his conversion. Now in his letter to the churches of Galatia, Paul referred to his former manner of life in Judaism and how he had persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Galatians 1.13, For if you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. All right, at that time he had believed that in pursuing such a course he was serving God and maintaining the purity of the Mosaic law. Paul's writing in the first chapter of the book of Galatians gave no indication of a break in his endeavor to please God at the time of his conversion. Galatians 1.15 and 16. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach Him among the Gentiles, I did not consult any man. And of course, that's because there were those who came to the church at Galatia, or the churches, plural, and uh, thought, well, you're not, you're not the guy that you say you are, you know. Uh, I'm sure you got your doctrine from James and John and Peter, etc. And he said, oh no, I got my doctrine from God, the Holy Spirit, in the Saudi Arabian desert, and uh, for a greater part of three years, I didn't get it from any man. So uh, he will use that quite often in the book of Galatians to. And including when he has to go see James about some false doctrine that some of the deacons had brought to Galatia. Alright, now let's go to 2.4. While the narratives of the book of Acts as well as his letters to the churches seem to indicate suddenness of the conversion, although clearly there were certain experiences that prepared him for that conversion. For example, the death of Stephen in which Saul was in hearty agreement and the heat of his house-to-house campaign against those of the faith could hardly faith could hardly leave him unaffected. Alright, so I'll give you an example of that. Acts chapter 7, verses 58, 59 and 60. He talks about dragging them out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of the young man named Saul. This is the stoning of Stephen. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Which he had said then, or when he said this, he fell asleep. He died, in other words. So there are those who say, you know, if Stephen had not prayed, Paul would not have preached. Well, that's probably not true, but nonetheless, it's catchy. All right, Acts 8, 1 and Then dropping down to verse 3, And Saul was there, giving approval to his death. On that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. But Paul, excuse me, Saul, began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. All right, in any case, there are two elements in the story which are clear. 
First, Paul was convinced that he had seen the Lord. And second, his life was radically changed from that day forward. The basis of his claim to apostleship lay in that experience. Once and again, he insists upon it. You can look at the 1 Corinthians 9, 1, 15, 8 through 15, Galatians 1, 15 through 7, 17, and uh, comparing. All right, Acts 9, 3, 8, 22, 6 through 11, 26, 12 through uh, 18. All right, let's read Acts 9, 11. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Remember, the Corinthians were always questioning his authority. They were questioning his, uh, uh, always questioning his appearance. They always they questioned why he was in the business. He's in it for the money when he wasn't taking anything from him. So, am I not free? Am I not apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Where he came, and of course, uh, when he arrived in Corinth, he almost left because it was such a hideous place. And uh, the Lord spoke to him and said, I have many people here who have not bowed their knee to false gods. So you just stay here and do as you're told. In other words, shut up and teach. Shut up and evangelize. Better said, evangelize and teach. All right. Acts 15, 8 and 9. And last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due time, talking about the apostles. He said, I'm the twelfth apostle. And he's the last of them. For I am the least of the apostles that am not meet to be called an apostle. In other words, I'm not worthy because I persecuted the church of God. And then Acts 9, 3, 4, and 5. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. Now he was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians. And uh, he had, in fact, he had a letter authorizing him to do that from the procurator or whomever, but from the authorities. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. In other words, I've been working with you and I've been working with you, but it's an awful hard on your part to kick against my authority. But I, but he had. Alright, since he was not one of the twelve, since he had no claim on Jesus, and since he had persecuted his followers, the necessity of the personal revelation of Christ to Paul became apparent. And apparent it was. The change was first indicated by Paul's response to the heavenly voice. What shall I do, Lord? Notice Acts 22.10. What shall I do, Lord, I ask? Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. So there he went. Probably was led most of the way as he was in this blinded condition from the bright light of the Lord. Uh, But he will have his sight restored, at least in part, as we can conclude from the fact that he very often would sign his name in large letters. Uh, and he also had Dr. Luke with him to guide and direct him and take care of him. His health was never good. And uh, he was, uh, as you know, beat about the head and shoulders by a demon that the Lord assigned to beat him about the head and shoulders. And uh, we'll get more to that later on. Uh, 
And he told him why. Because he asked the demon three times, take this demon from me. I'm tired of getting beat about the head and shoulders. You know, I'm on the ropes. You know, I'm bleeding. You know, my nose is broke. You know, my jaw is broke. I'm hurting. I'm hurting. Get this guy away from me. Because everywhere he went, he had problems, 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 problems. And the Lord said, no, you need this. You need this. You need all this persecution, old buddy, because you're a better man for it. Uh, and that answers a lot of questions about suffering sometimes, I think, for us from time to time. All right, uh, in Galatians 2.21, one of my favorite verses, 20, 21, and 22, Paul shows that he had a new relationship with Christ. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. And that ends, by the way, the second chapter of the book of Galatians. And uh, it's probably time for us to stop. And what better way could we, or place could we stop than right here? Because uh, he said, Christ, if you could be saved any other way, then faith alone in Christ alone, then Christ could have just as well stayed home. For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. So if you're out there and you haven't believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and maybe you think that you can do something or several things in order to make yourself right with God. Forget it. You can't. If it was possible, then Christ could have just as well stayed home in that happiest of all conditions in heaven. But He didn't. He chose to get under the authority of the Father and to uh, come and uh, do the plan that the Father had come up with. Has God the Holy Spirit agreed to communicate the plan? Uh, of course, uh, Christ agreed to execute the plan, and the Father came up with the plan, and that's the plan that Paul was telling everybody about. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. He said that to the jailer, either he or Silas, when they were on the second missionary journey, and they were in Philippi. And uh, you recall, the jailer said, What must I do to be saved? And the answer was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That was one of my my brother's very favorite uh, passages. And of course, you know, he sang to us today. And uh, he loved to tell people in the latter part of his life, uh, he was a late bloomer, as most of us are. Uh, But uh, he told uh, many a person, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved as he would sing songs all over Central Texas. And that's what we're doing here today. Not singing songs all over Central Texas, but telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ by way of the Internet and the podcast. So if you're out there and you haven't believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, it's it's time. Uh, you know, it's, it's about time, brother, you know, that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day or the next day. But I do know what will happen when you die. If you do believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to go to heaven. You're going to go to heaven. Why? Because of what Christ did. For we're all sinners. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord.
Now let's go to the Lord for the benediction. And uh, I'm going to pause a little bit before that benediction, just so if you're out there and you want to believe, just tell God the Father that you're believing on God the Son. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of living in the United States of America. Help us to recognize the gift that you've given us by placing us here. And help us to understand that we are to submit to our authorities and salute smartly. And uh, to recognize that uh, you didn't write the book of Romans for no reason. You wrote it to us so that we might understand that you put the authorities in place. And our job is to submit. So uh, guide us, direct us as we go throughout this week. And I certainly would ask that God the Holy Spirit would take that which I have ta- which I taught today. Make it real in order that we might grow in your wonderful grace and become more like our Lord and Savior, even Jesus the Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.